playback on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by Panadol. Panadol Extra Film Coated Tablets contain paracetamol. For pain relief, always read the label or leaflet. Good morning. On Thursday, the very sad news of the death of 24-year-old Private Sean Rooney, who was killed while serving with the UN peacekeeping mission in Lebanon. And in a critical condition, 23-year-old Private Shane Carney. They had been part of a convoy travelling to Beirut when it came under attack. On Morning Ireland, Chief of Staff of Oglina Heron, Lieutenant General Sean Clancy, joined Anya. It's probably been one of the toughest nights of your service. Tell us about the news you got and the news you had to break. Yes, it has been a very dark night, I have to say, but it's not a tough night for me. It's a tough night for the family of a soldier we have lost. It's a tough night for Oglina Heron. You know, I think we face into a something that none of us ever want to face in uniform service. Uh, this that deeply wounds the organisation as a whole. I think, and uh, I think it's fair to say that you know our thoughts, our prayers, our whole beings are with the extended family of Oglinghair and those of the soldier in particular that has lost his life in the service of the state, wearing the uniform, wearing the flag on a foreign state. And uh, I suppose that sums up our feelings today. Uh, all of Ogling the Hearn are feeling this very, very deeply. And with roots in Donegal and Dundalk, Sean Rooney had been in the army for almost four years. Tributes were paid to the soldier from government and from President Michael D. Higgins, Supreme Commander of the Defence Forces. We are all deeply appreciative of this time of the year, of those members of the forces who are serving abroad in any one of the over 60 conflict zones uh, of the world. Anything we say will be insufficient to deal with the grief which his mother must be uh, uh, carrying at this present time. Uh, And uh, to her and the other members of the family, uh, as President of Ireland, I express my, my deepest sympathy. I've always thought at this time of the year for the forces abroad that we must in a particular way think of their families because their work for peace, a peace we so badly need, is carried through the sacrifices of their family at home. And it's always a very joyous occasion when they when they come safely back uh, from where they have served. We so wish uh, his family solidarity at this present time. President Michael D. Higgins. This is the first death in combat of a Defence Forces member in 23 years. Hezbollah has denied involvement, saying an unintentional incident had led to the peacekeeper's death. However, Minister for Foreign Affairs Simon Coveney is not accepting those assurances until a full investigation is carried out. On yesterday's News at One, Gavin spoke to Al Jazeera's international correspondent, Zena Hadir, who is in Beirut and had visited the scene. This is an area of Lebanon where there's a lot of suspicion towards the UN peacekeepers. Now, of course, we spoke to a number of people on the ground. We heard, you know, different narratives. Like I said, the investigation is is still underway. What we understand 
from security sources is that this was not the uh, normal route the UN peacekeepers usually take as they make their way from Beirut. They were traveling from South Lebanon to, to Beirut. What we understand is they took a wrong turn. They took the turn and they were on the coastal road, not the main highway. This, of course, does not in any way justify the attack that happened. But I'm telling you what security sources have been telling us. Now, they took the wrong road. Apparently, they were faced with um, what the Irish defense minister also calls a hostile crowd. Uh, They were attacked. The peacekeepers tried to escape. They were chased. And then they were shot at. So this is what we understand happened from sources. Again, the investigation is still underway. The UN spokesperson, the UNIFIL spokesperson, just spoke to me a short while ago, and he's he is saying that, you know, what happened is clearly a crime. It's unacceptable. Perpetrators need to be brought to justice, and the Lebanese authorities need to assist us in the investigation. From yesterday's News at One. And a team of Irish army personnel will travel to Lebanon to help with the investigation. Here in Ireland, flags at all military installations will fly at half-mast until Private Sean Rooney is buried. On Thursday's drive time from Killa in Cork, parish priest Father Tim Hazelwood, who spoke ahead of a prayer vigil for Private Shane Carney, who was injured in the attack. And Cormac read out these messages of solidarity and support. Tom Taff says, I want to pay tribute to Private Sean Rooney and hope that his colleague makes a full recovery. Um, Eta says, I would like to offer my sympathies to the mother and the family of Private Sean Rooney on his tragic death uh, serving with the UN. Um, a Sligo mother says, we're thinking about all of the members of the Defence Forces. My uncle is only back since November and my younger brother Adam has been out there last year. It's a tough, tough job. They're all heroes. We're thinking of Sean Rooney and Shane Carney's families and anyone else uh, injured as well. And in they come, uh, Father. There's a big crowd expected. um, They're very much part of the community. Um, Shane played hurling for the local club. Paddy's a referee. So it's a big shock. I think it's the fact that for 20 years there's been nothing. We kind of had that sense of they're safe. And then... This happens, and the reality is that they're never safe. From Thursday's drive time. Now, something beautiful and of the season.
that is lovely. But now, we're back to some political scrapping. Unleash debate with Colm Mungon, a roundup of the year and some awards. Contenders for the political diss of the year, making the Gremlin naughty list the choice of Louise Byrne, political correspondent for the Irish Daily Mirror. This came out a couple of months ago that there was 51 or 52 Irish politicians banned from Russia. Um, at first we heard the kind of the high profile names, the Taoiseach, the Thánaiste, uh, Helen McEntee, Pascal Donoghue, the Ciarán Corla. And that day in Leinster House, I have never seen, I haven't seen such a buzz in a long time. There was people walking up and down the corridors and you'd go, are you on the list? And they go, I hope I'm on the list. I'd wear it as a badge of honour if I'm on the list. <laughs> like people were gasping like genuinely gasping to be on the list and it was 51 or 52 I can't remember but there's 160 TDs 60 senators so a lot of them didn't get on the list and some of them were fuming they weren't on the list couldn't figure out why they weren't on the list and a lot of a lot of annoyed people that day so that's my political diss of the year but muscling its way in Cork Here's Jennifer Cavanagh from South East Technological University egged on by Harry McGee of the Irish Times what I went for is actually linked to the Russians, but it's the Cork, uh, it's technically the Irish South and West Fisher Fish Producers Organisation who challenged the Russian Navy with uh, saying that they were going to go out and fish in the waters they were always fishing in. And it, to me, it was a very kind of Cork Kerry solution to an Irish problem of we're going there. And if you don't like it, that's your problem. If you shoot us, that's your problem. We're going where we want to go. And at the end, the Russian Navy were... Uh, pretty much saying we're very sorry we'll just move away from there. It wasn't it the uh, Skibbereen Eagle that says watch out sir we're uh, we're watching you so uh, Southwest Cork does have that reputation of being the best Russia watchers in the business. Absolutely uh, it's mm. not the Rebel County for nothing. From late debate and the winner of the overall politician of the year Micheál Martin just as he and Leo swap seats. Now it is almost upon us this Sunday, the World Cup final, Argentina versus France. And after Argentina's defeat of Croatia, they might well be casting the number 10 jersey in solid gold. Wednesday's sports bulletin on Morning Ireland brought us this. Now is the best player in the world. The best of the world, world, world is Maradona after Messi. You know, the older he gets, the better he gets. Um, he's just fantastic, like unbelievable, a couple of tricks and uh, the assists and the passes and he's, he's so good. I think uh, he played tonight one of his best games yeah. uh, for Argentina. I mean, incredible. Messi is a legend. Messi, he doesn't have the physics like Maradona, but he did everything. He don't need the World Cup to be the best, but he will get it hopefully. Messi number one. Not if Mbappe has anything to say about it. Oh yes, we're all football fans now. So, Argentina's first win since 1986. Might that happen? Or France to keep a hold of the trophy. With Claire Guillaume Balgue, who said that this may well come down to the two key players. And they both exactly the same. So they have this structure and then they hope their star does something that makes a difference. Either Mbappe or Messi. I don't like to individualize football games this way but this one you have to because they really depend on what Messi can create or what Mbappé can create. So the teams then and how they play both teams in the final they're structured around the big star. They structured first of all not to concede goals and once they go ahead they not they're more than happy to defend in their own box and that means everybody at it. But in terms of something has to happen that makes the difference wins them a game. Ball to Mbappé, 
hopefully in the space, so he can just create something. Ball to Messi, so he can link up with somebody and then find the the answer. So yeah, absolutely, it's 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 what's what's happening. And to, and they both responded, by the way. They both have got five goals. Mbappe two assists. Messi three assists. Yes, Messi's ahead because not only you know he's given more assists than than anybody, he's actually created more chances than anybody. He's they committed more fouls against him than anybody. He's been so influential. But these two teams depend on the superstars, so it's fair that the covers of the newspapers have them. But after all that, would he make a prediction? Are you going to risk trying to call this one, uh, Guillaume? Uh, I, I'm going to call it. I'm going to call it. You ready? Um, it's going to go to penalties. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Harry, maybe maybe one goal, maybe one, that's about it. I don't I don't see many difference between both sides, and uh, and and yes, it, it will get to a point where the fear of losing will become the permanent feeling, and uh, and and penalties. And after that, I know Messi will score it, and so would Mbappe. So it will depend on everybody else. Okay, so you're not calling it really. I'm not calling it really. <laughs> Fair play. I wouldn't. I don't blame you, Guillaume. Reticent. But on drive time, football legends Ray Houghton and Liam Brady were pushed to pick that winning side. It's going to be a sensational final, Ray, isn't it? Who do you think could, could uh, win it? Well, both of them have got very solid defences. I know in the semi-finals, for example, uh, France didn't concede and neither did Argentina. Argentina is probably the better defensively throughout the whole competition. I thought France rode the luck a little bit against uh, England, got away with it. Um, but in the semi-final, even though they had less... Uh, possession of the ball than Morocco, they've still got devastating players. You know, when you've got someone like Griezmann who can pick a pass, and then you've got someone like uh, Mbappe with his blistering pace. I mean, he's so quick over the ground; it's unbelievable. Mm. They they can do devastating things to win you. But you need a good goalkeeper, a solid defence as well. And and do you think they have that, Liam, or is it Argentina to win? Because we have uh, an eight-year-old in our house who's very much has his heart set in Argentina to win. Give them some good news. I think we all have. I think I think we all have. We all want it to happen for, for the little fella. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, my heart uh, says, Messi? says Messi in <laughs> Argentina. My head, my head thinks uh, France. Ooh, leaning towards France. Leave it all on the page. Game of two halves. All of that. Come on the Sunday. Back in a bit. Welcome back. On Sunday with Miriam, a tiny wee baby in studio. Well, almost. Guests Stephanie Preisner and Noel Byrne had come in to talk about their life as new parents and their three-month-old baby daughter was just outside the glass. But they had had five miscarriages since 2020. And in a world of insta-stories and filtered perfection, it was their honesty that stood out. You didn't tell anyone when you were pregnant, you didn't at all, Stephanie. Because no. you were very big on social media, but, but you didn't say anything. No, I didn't say anything because I didn't say anything for any of the pregnancies. And I guess when you've had as many losses as we've had, we didn't know until until she was here that she was going to be here. And I didn't want to share it. I didn't. I wasn't able for the well-meaning but unsolicited advice and the platitudes and you know people saying like oh you'll get there just relax it'll happen you know just keep calm because you know my obstetrician even said I can't guarantee you that this is going to end in a live birth but we'll take it week by week and scan by scan and so it just felt for my own Mm self-preservation I needed to just not not say anything. And all of that against the backdrop of other couples announcing their pregnancies. Not easy. 
you know when you're at the airport and the bags are coming out on the carousel yeah and everyone's getting their luggage and walking away and you're like where is my bag it just felt like when am I going to be pregnant when is it going to happen for me and it just you know it it, it really gets in on your mental health and I and I and each pregnancy and each miscarriage brought its own loss and pain. And for Noel, even talking about this was difficult. He spoke about getting the call to say that they had miscarried when COVID restrictions meant he wasn't allowed into the hospital. It's absolutely heartbreaking sitting in the car to get that news. Mm. And there's a sense of being powerless in it. Obviously, men are... I would say in most cases less emotionally attached to what's going on in terms of the the baby as well as the physical burden is obviously entirely the woman's. So you're left kind of isolated. You're there for your partner and you want to support them. But beyond that, you kind of don't know what to do. So when you go in, obviously you want to support Mm -hmm. your partner and, and be there for Steph. But you're almost conscious of, I think, talking about it because it's so involved for the woman and you almost feel like if I say something as a man or as the dad that you'll somehow be seen to undermine the position of the woman in all of this or Mm. kind of downplay the woman's role. Dads I think definitely are forgotten a little bit Mm. in the conversation and even you don't know where to turn to to talk to people because to go back to Steph's point no one really talks about it that much till afterwards. And then dads generally just don't talk about it at all. But they persisted. And on their sixth pregnancy, things seemed to be going okay. And each scan brought relief. But having been through what they'd been through, the worry remained. What if I miscarry now? Or what if something has happened in the interim on the way down the stairs? Tolerating that anxiety for nine months meant that I just cannot relate to women who say, I just love being pregnant. I imagine you like being pregnant, do you, Miriam? I didn't mind it. You yeah. didn't mind it, yeah. But I just can't. I just can't. It was the worst time in my life. Like, But that's obviously, Noel, I suppose, because you were so worried. As you said, you'd had five miscarriages. So I suppose, Noel, every day you'd have to reassure her and just act normal. And you were probably worried too. Absolutely. The worry was there. But, you know, a part of me felt like my role was, you know, that evolutionary protect and provide situation. So it was trying to be cognizant of the worries that she was obviously feeling and feeling anxious while also having some confidence that it was going to go well. I think you were convinced that it was going to go well before I was. Like, because I, think so. I wouldn't, I refused to like buy any clothes, buy a buggy, do like I just didn't want to buy anything because I didn't want to have this car seat empty if I didn't come home with a baby. Yeah. And Noel like, and Jenny as well were like, okay, so you, you do now need to pack a bag. Like, it's <laughs> just now 34 <laughs> weeks, like you need to do something. Um, and... But I kind of wasn't convinced. But you, you were able to hold that for while sure. I wasn't but there was a part of it feeling that you were jinxing it. You know that the know. universe was going to turn on you and be like, "Well, that was nice while it lasted, but and it's not going to work this time either." That's something that really annoys me about positivity and manifesting and stuff. This, this rhetoric that started that like you can put something out to the universe and you'll just get it, and if you think negatively. That's what's wrong. Like you can't jinx, you can't cause a mix, miscarriage by buying a buggy. You can't cause a miscarriage by planning mm. for the future. And all these people who say like just be positive about it. Like you're allowed to be anxious and you're not going to jinx your pregnancy. Jinx your pregnancy by being. But I found that like being on social media, all that sort of toxic positivity. That's why I kind of didn't mention anything. 
But they did have a healthy baby, cute as a button, as they freely admitted. But the magical bonding moment took its own time. It was a solid eight weeks before I felt like I had a real love and connection with Rory. Mm. And it turns out that it's completely normal because it is essentially a stranger who's wandered into our space and our relationship. And I'm still getting to know them, whereas Steph and mothers generally have this bond building. I didn't feel it either, though. I have to say I did not feel a wave of love. And I used to cry. It's changed now. She's going to be 12 weeks. It's changed now. But I used to cry into my dinner every evening thinking I cannot do another night of this. What like now they don't smile until they're like two months, yeah. which is like evolutionary hell like make them <laughs> smile from the get go it makes it so much easier if they can smile so she's just this really demanding high stakes Tamagotchi that you have to keep alive and she's literally sucking the life out of you because I was breastfeeding and it was just like those first few weeks and I was not expecting it and there was some tough talking for those mammies and daddies out there who insist on perfect insta lives I think your honesty is great though because an awful lot of newborn mothers feel exactly like you do but I think Mm. Why don't they say it though? I think we're afraid that if you said it no one would do it (laughs) because it's it's pretty tough It's more than pretty tough Miriam (laughs) like you've done it eight times it's hell and people were messaging me on publicly being like oh she's so cute enjoy the snuggles and then privately being like oh it's hell like it is awful you're exhausted it's the worst time of your life and I'm like please can we say this publicly so that it's not that people won't do it but when they are doing it Mm. they know okay Mm. it's supposed to be hard like this Mm. child needs everything from me everything like they can they're useless they can do nothing like (laughs) human babies are born way before they're able to sustain themselves because if their heads and brains got any bigger they wouldn't be able to fit out so they're really really not able for the world and you know I felt guilty that she'll only sleep on us but of Mm. course she'll only sleep on us because if she was in if we were back in the caveman days and we put her lying on the ground like she'd get eaten so of course she wants to sleep on us and feed from us and but I just hadn't heard it before and so I spent so many weeks being like, oh my God, our baby is broken. She won't sleep in a crib. She won't go in a buggy. She won't go in a car seat. She hates all of that. I'm trapped here. And then eventually, as I started to speak out loud about it, people were like, oh no, mine doesn't sleep either too. And mine, you know, and you kind yeah. of, you kind of want these little wins where you're like, oh, mine sleeps a half an hour longer than yours. So that's fine. You know, and that <laughs> community, that village that it takes a child, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. That village is gone. It's just been eye opening in a kind of a sad way. And I think if I have friends who have babies from now on, I'll be very different mm. in my response to them, knowing what I know. Stephanie Preisner, Noel Byrne and the baby outside the glass from Sunday with Miriam. With Ryan and author favourite Louise Penny, the Canadian behind the Inspector Gamache crime series. And even if you haven't read the books, her own story was compelling. Emotional, yes, but also curiously uplifting. I came out of the womb for some reason, and I was never given a re- you know, I was never given reason to be afraid, but I was afraid of everything and One of the main things I was afraid of was the judgment of others. And so I did not attempt to do the one thing I think I was put on earth to do, and that's right. So I took the ancillary close enough, but not quite the same thing, and that is being a journalist um, on radio, as we're doing right now, um, where the stories are are very um, tight, very focused, but also very short. They're essentially over in you know, a few minutes or a couple of paragraphs. Um, So 
so yeah, I, I became a journalist. The, the great thing is, as you know, and you're clearly a, a genius at this, is the journalists, especially if they're on air, are, are really good listeners. And that has served me well, I, I hope, as a writer. Yeah. The best writer, I think, in the, in the room generally is not the loudest person. It's the person sitting quietly in the corner taking it all in. Taking it all in with the view to seeing material everywhere you look. Well, that's it. They're either a writer or a sociopath. So, so often, <laughs> yeah, that's for really sure. hard to tell the difference. I, I'm, I'm intrigued by what... And to manage that fear and insecurity, she drank. Initially, what I did when I got into my teens, late teens, was I started drinking mm. quite heavily. It, it did at least allow me to get out into the world. And then, of course, as these things do, eventually it, it turned on me. And, and, and finally, that was really what, 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 what broke open my whole life and, and shattered all those insecurities was that I reached a fork in the road where I either was going to kill myself or get better. Something had to change. I was 35, not even halfway through my life. Um, I used to look at elderly people and wonder how they did it. How do you get gray in your hair? And, and, and still be alive and, and, and be happy. So fortunately, I've realized if I was willing to kill myself, maybe I should be willing to try to get help first. What did alcohol do for you as a plus? And I say that with a qualified plus in the initial years, I suppose. What, what was it doing to, to help you? Well, it, 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 I, I was just so deeply insecure and, and, and it helped numb those feelings. Um, so I would I would go to work and then come home and, and drink myself and drink all the insecurities and all the wounds, real or imagined or manufactured, um, away. But it, it allowed me to get out the door to begin with. As these things do, it became a prison. And for her, drinking was a solitary pursuit. I mean, drinkers come in all sorts of, you know, different... Um, sizes and shapes, and mm. I was an a, an isolated drinker. So nobody nobody knew that I was drinking at all. I was so deeply ashamed of it and ashamed of myself. So I would I would I would be the designated driver. In fact, I would have at, at parties. So I wouldn't drink at all. And then when I got home, I would I would do a lot of drinking. And she talked to mine about reaching a crossroads in her life. So yet nobody nobody knew that this was happening. So it was something. It was a private moment. One of those. After joining a twelve step program, I, I you, you listen to a lot of people's experiences, many of which are just like just a, 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 so shattering, just a terrible, terrible experiences they had that brought them to their knees, uh, but brought them to their bottom. For me, mine was just so prosaic. I, I just I remember. Just to this day, as though it's happening now, standing in my bedroom, frozen, paralyzed. I, 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 I couldn't move forward. I couldn't move backward. I couldn't look in the mirror anymore because I had, I had betrayed all the advantages I had been given. I couldn't look at pictures of me as a child anymore out of shame. Um, and I certainly couldn't imagine moving forward into life. And so it was just one of those very quiet moments where I realized, yeah, I'm, I'm either going to die or I'm going to live, but something has to change. Something has to happen. With the help of the AA, she got sober 
and very quickly met her beloved husband, Michael. I remember driving shortly after our first date and I fell in love with him right away. Like right, it was a, in Quebec, we call it a coup de foudre, mm. which is a, a, a love at first sight. Mm-hmm. Took him a little longer. I kept asking, are you not in love with me yet? Mm. <laughs> which apparently is not a lovely thing to say, but yeah. <laughs> I kept saying it. Um, <laughs> but I was driving along, going to a, another friend's house and the car broke down. Of course it broke down and I didn't care. I didn't care. Nothing could hurt me because I was in love. And theirs was a very happy marriage. But her husband died in 2016 after developing dementia. But Louise Penny had a perspective on loss that was both impressive and uplifting. And the goodness she knew in her husband, she now brings to her writing in the character of Inspector Gamache. Gamache is absolutely based on and inspired by Michael. Michael was um, the head of haematology at the Montreal Children's Hospital. He was the doctor you never, ever, ever want to have to mm. meet because it meant that your child was desperately ill. And he, 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 he told young parents things no parent should ever have to hear. And he, he sat with children and held their hand through the night. Um, and, but he would come home and he was the happiest man I've ever met. Not, not because terminally ill and dying children made him happy. Of course they didn't. Um, but he understood what a gift life yeah. life is and what a betrayal, back to that word, a betrayal it would be of those young people who don't get to brush gray from their eyes. If those of us who do don't live life fully and bravely and with joy and gratitude. He taught me that. And I try to imbue that in Gamash. Gamash is a good and decent human being, not because he's too stupid to understand how cruel the world is. He sees it every day. He kneels over it every day. But he also understands what a gift life is for those of us lucky enough to live it. Writer Louise Penny with Ryan. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Last minute shopping, aisle hopping, throwing anything and everything into the bag, just the last few bits. To the side. To the side. To the side. And around. Through the middle end. To the side. To the side. To the side. And around. Through the middle end. To the side. To the side. To the side. To the side. And around. And around and around. And around and around. To the side. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Through the midpoint. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Through the midpoint. Two, three, four, five, Yes, it's all a bit of a whirlwind now. But in the sage words of Connor Pope... A panicked shopper is a stupid shopper. And no one wants that. So what does he advise? Yeah. A, a lot of it is about um, shopping for presents, when to do it and how to do it. Yeah, well actually the, 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 the key thing when it comes to shopping for presents is you never do it at the last minute. And I have been that last minute man and traditionally it's mostly men who do this. Now I remember reading a piece of research from the United States and they actually train retail people in the United States to spot those panic shoppers. Because when you're, when you, when you're going in at the last minute to do your Christmas shopping, you just basically are running around the place like a crazy person going, I'll just take whatever, whatever, whatever 
I need, I'll just buy it, whatever the cost. And I think that makes it, that, 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 that makes for a bad shopper. Mm. So the key thing is timing, right? And, it, and, and then the next thing that you do is you, you draw a, up a list, okay, of who you need to be buying presents for. And you rank them in order of the most expensive down to the least expensive. And you buy the most expensive presents first or the most important presents first. And what that does is it takes the pressure off you when it comes to the, to the rest of your shop, your, 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 your present buying. And so that's a really key thing. And also, it's incredibly important, Ray, that you time it right. So everybody who hasn't got their Christmas present by the 19th, 20th, 21st of December should be up into, into the shops at 9 o'clock in the morning. Because once 11 o'clock happens, the crowds mm. start pouring into the cities and the towns, and then you start to feel all the stress. You start to feel under real pressure. So I did either do your shopping very first thing in the morning or very last thing at night. And that way, when there's less crowds around, you tend to make better purchasing decisions. Right. Ooh, slightly weary sounding Darcy but there was no escaping the Christmas this week and popping his head up all over the place Ebenezer Scrooge and a Christmas carol and if Ray Bah humbug Darcy was all about Scrooge with Bill Murray Ryan Tuberty was all over this particular version Christmas is a very busy time for us Mr Cratchit people preparing feasts giving parties spending the mortgage money on frivolities one might say that December is the foreclosure season. Harvest time for the moneylenders. If you please, Mr. Scrooge, it's gotten colder. Yeah. And the bookkeeping staff would like to have an extra shovel full of coal for yeah. the fire. We can't do the bookkeeping. Yeah, all of our pens have turned to inksicles. Yeah. Our assets are frozen. How would the bookkeepers like to be suddenly... Unemployed! I believe you've convinced them once again, Mr. Scrooge. <laughs> the Muppet Christmas Carol, a classic. But for our purposes, we will go to Arena for the literary and cinematic analysis. Very highbrow. The year of publication was 1843, and not to burst your Christmas bubble. But as Jarlath Colleen told Sean, Charles Dickens needs a hit. Given the topic of the whole thing, it's a, it's a kind of ironic that money was the driving force. Money was the driving force. So he was having a, a bit of a, a lull in success terms. So his his the novel that he was uh, writing, Martin Chuzzle, was selling around 20,000 copies per month. And that was half as good as, say, the Pickwick Papers or Nicholas Nickleby. So he was... Worried about his success. Yeah, and, and when you say he was earning that amount of money for him, or to, to, that amount of copies per month, it was it was being get being sent out in installments, which is yes, what he did with all the yes, novels. It's, it's one one a month, and that's that's how he he wrote. Yeah. More, practically everything he he wrote was in installment fiction. So he was worried about that. It, worried that it was impacted on his celebrity. He he wanted to be the most successful author at the time, and he was also had a growing family. I think he had a, a three or four children at this stage, um, so he needed the money. Tiny Tim, a cash cow? Surely not. But lest we get too cynical entirely, it is not the time for that, Dickens' social conscience is central to this story. We wrote it over a six-week period. He had, had, he had three different things in his mind, except, as well as the money. Or he wanted the money, yeah. he needed the money. But he had visited a, 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 a tin mine and seen the conditions in a tin mine up in Cornwall. He had, he had visited a ragged school in London and seen the conditions of the children there. And he'd also read a royal commission into ch- childhood employment as well, in which 
children's uh, employment in mines, uh, working 11 hours mm. a day in cramped working conditions, children working uh, 16 or 17 hours sewing uh, dresses. All these things had a huge impact on him. And he was determined that this book would do something. He wanted, his key audience was actually employers. He wanted mm. employers to change. Um, he wanted them to grant better working conditions and better rights to their employees. Partly because of his genuine fear for what would happen if these things didn't change. He was genuinely fear, fearful of an actual revolution. He was convinced there was going to be a revolution if employers didn't start to, to make concessions to their employees in terms of rights, in terms of wages. So that's really to, his, to, the, to the fore when he's writing it. And that's why Tiny Tim becomes a kind of almost like a, a, a representative of these. This is what's going to happen if you don't pay your employees better. And there was another element to this, timing. Dickens not only reflected Christmas, his novel created it. He cottoned on fairly quickly um, that Christmas was becoming a big deal mm. in the mid-19th century. The same time as the Christmas carols produced, you get the first Christmas card, you get the beginnings of a reinterest in what, how can we celebrate Christmas now? Because... We've had a period at the beginning of the 19th century of mass migration from the countryside to the city, to sort of staff industries. And people can't celebrate Christmas exactly the same as they used to celebrate it in, in, in the countryside because you can't carry those rural traditions. So in fact, there was a kind of a crisis of Christmas, historians tell us, that people didn't really know what to do. How was Christmas going to be celebrated now? And the 1840s is really this bridge period where they the, the, the Victorians kind of... what what they call mm. refurbish Christmas and begin a whole series of new traditions. And Dickens is cottoning on. Something has to be done to explain to people how can you celebrate Christmas in the cities and towns rather than the countryside. No, no, what he does is he provides a kind of blueprint. So here you go, this Absolutely. is how you can celebrate it. If you think about, think about the way we celebrate it now, think about the centrality of the Cratchit family Christmas to mm. our own Christmases. What we think of as the ideal Christmas is actually the Cratchit family Christmas. And so Dickens has provided, there's the blueprint. Prior to the 19th century, Christmas had been a, a much more communal, community-based, Mm. much more outdoorsy kind of event where the entire village would gather usually at the at the at the, the the village square or in the land of the big house yeah and the landlord or the the local lord would provide for a kind of a huge christmas feast but in dick with dickens what dickens does is he domesticates christmas you you celebrate christmas in your own house with your own family with your nuclear family and it's a respectable Christmas. It's not a raucous, crazy Christmas like mm. you might have had in the Middle Ages. From the raucous to the respectable. Oh, that Dickens fella has a lot to answer for. Jarlath Colleen with Sean on Arena. So around the table, all the family, what joy. And if you are stuck for conversation topics, knives away for this almost traditional scrap. If you can find a pig that volunteers to end its life, okay. I'd happily eat a rasher sandwich. Liveline asking the question, is it time for a vegan Christmas? You just heard Sarah and also on the line, free range farmer Peter. Joe, as you might have guessed, mad for a nut roast he is. Just joshing. Yeah, I don't see how this kind of um, embodies compassion and kindness for the Christmas by killing turkeys. 
And also another point that no one seems to have made is the impact on the environment and the climate. Animal agriculture is absolutely devastating. It's the number Mm. one thing in Ireland um, that's impacting climate change. Because it seems to be so normal here in Ireland, people, I did too, um, grew up eating pork Mm -hmm. and chicken and whatnot, the bacon and cabbage and the roast chicken. Um, Whereas in, let's say, Indonesia, China, they grew up eating dog meat. And that's fine, but I think any Irish person would be horrified if you put a burger in front of them and said, that's a lovely piece now of dog meat. That's exactly my point, Sarah, that I was making, that uh, in different cultures... I, I, I love my dog, but I wouldn't eat dog meat, and I think it's terrible to kill a dog. But the people in China do it. And the people in Ireland have eaten turkey and ham for all of it. And we have people now, vegan people, coming on, and they're saying that people should not eat turkey and ham for Christmas. Now, if, I, I mean, I could say, I'm having a pint of Guinness, I, but I'm not, going, I'm not an alcoholic, but I'm going to give up the Guinness next year, and nobody should have a pint of Guinness or a pint of whatever at Christmas. You know, if you want to be a vegan, absolutely. I have people that come into our market in Dublin, in Glasnevin, every Saturday, and they're vegans. But they, they walk by my stall and they say, sorry, I don't want to buy anything from you. Yeah, but in fairness, in, fairness, in fairness, Peter, like, okay, people might get slaughtered drinking a few pints, so to speak, exactly, to use a phrase. But, n- but, but nothing is slaughter, slaughtered in the making of a pint of Guinness. No. No, oh, no is, one has died. Oh, there is, there is, there is. The hops, are, the hops are, they're not a living creature. They're no, murdered. that is They're ridiculous. Murdered. I'm really sorry. That is ridiculous. The, you need the to do tiny science lessons. They don't the have a murdered. central nervous and, system. And they're, drowned, They're not they're sentient well. beings. So you really need to do open up a science book before you yeah, say no, things you like need that. To open up, I'm going to open up my, my plate of turkey and ham is what I'm going to do and I'm going to enjoy okay. every bit of it. Lifeline and the most seasonal of scraps. And staying with tradition... Sprites are lovely. Lovely, lovely. Not to besmirch the professional reputation of Chef Mark Moriarty, but that's just a straight-up lie. And every year, we get the advice. Smother them in bacon, drown them in cream, waterboard them in vinegar. Lovely, 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 if only you could kill their essence. But here is Claire Byrne, our playback hero. Just think sprouts, though. I know they're related to cabbage, but they're not cabbage. They're just slightly bitter. They have an edge to them. They bite you back. Well, do you know what the thing with sprouts is? And it's a tip we always use in the restaurant kitchen. You know, you, you have that bitter edge. Yeah. If you're, now I roast my sprouts at Christmas, but if you're boiling them, always add salt and caster sugar to your water. And what the caster sugar does is it pushes back the bitterness, bitterness edge in the sprout. <sighs> Don't know quite what's happening there. We seem to have a technical difficulties fading away. Oh, well. That is it for this week's playback. Thank you for listening. We are not here next week, usurped by the Liveline Christmas Eve special. But we will be back for a best of the year on Saturday, December 31st. So chat to you then. In the meantime, have a lovely Christmas. And if you get the opportunity, have a little dance. Feliz Navidad. Feliz Navidad. Feliz Navidad, prospero año y felicidad.